I'm going to be reading out of John chapter 5, um, the entire chapter, page number 792 in your pew Bible. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have been I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing, nothing worth, worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, so as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life into death, or from death into life. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and who, those who hear will live. For as the Father has his life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. 
You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not search the, believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. I do not re receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hopes, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you not do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This morning, uh, I thought I'd give you a little bit of an introduction to, uh, to Greek with uh, the title there. That's, uh, I'm preaching from, uh, from John 5, verses 1 to 17, and I've, uh, I've entitled the sermon, Taking Up One's Crabaton on the Sabaton. And... Uh, Krabaton actually means mat, and sabaton, I think you probably figured out, means, means Sabbath. So, taking up one's mat on the Sabbath. And uh, this is probably a sermon that is going to uh, uh, be a little bit controversial. And, uh, and so, it really shouldn't surprise you or alarm you, because our Lord consistently dealt with controversial issues... And, uh, and so we need to do as well when they, when they come up in God's holy word. But I believe uh, some principles need to be applied here that we should apply not to, to the controversial issues that are going to be presented here, but to all controversial issues in, in matters of Scripture. Number one, we need to seek the Lord and His truth as outlined in Holy Scripture as our ultimate authority. Number two, we need to be willing to change or to let go of opinions and beliefs that are not guided by Holy Scripture. And number three, when brothers or sisters hold a position that is different from our own, we need to pray for them and when necessary, discuss those issues with them personally and not with others. And we need to do so with an attitude of love and humility allowing the other to differ in areas that are of secondary and tertiary importance. And, uh, and I pray that you would, uh, would keep these things in mind as we look at, at, um, at this passage, but, but really as we look at, at any issues uh, that, that are, are controversial in Scripture, that, that Scripture would be our guide, that we'd be willing to submit to Scripture, and that when we, we deal with these issues, we do so in a loving, humble biblical way. And this morning, when we turn to, to John chapter 5, we're, we're, beginning, um, we're examining the beginning of yet another phase in the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
when he was on earth. And this is a phase of, of increasing rejection. And we see the conflict between him and the Pharisees here in chapter 5, as well as the, the rejection by Jesus or of Jesus by the man who had been healed. We see in chapter 6 the rejection of him even by his own disciples. And then this, this rejection and this opposition and even hatred of Jesus gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it culminates in the cross. So the issue that Jesus is addressing is, is really the same one that he was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees and their wrong understanding and application of the law. By demonstrating his own relationship to the law, Jesus was showing the Pharisees who he is. He was also showing them by implication who they were. Another spoiler warning here, the Pharisees didn't like it one little bit. With John chapter 5, Jesus is on the move again. and he, John says at the beginning, after these things. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly how long afterwards. In the preceding chapters, Jesus had, had met with Nicodemus. He had met with a Samaritan woman at the well and with many other Samaritans. He had healed the official sons in Capernaum. And, and, and now he's headed back to Jerusalem for a feast. Now, there's some discussion as to exactly what feast this is. Some think it's the Passover because in the next chapter, in John chapter 6, he says that Passover, the feast, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. But again, the evidence is circumstantial because, again, in John chapter 6, John doesn't tell us the time period. He just says, sometime later. And up to a year and a half may have passed since the last recorded festival, which was the Passover in John chapter 2, where Jesus had, had cleared the temple. So some span of time had taken place. Remember that, that John doesn't give, John's has a different purpose than the synoptic gospels. Well, they have the same ultimate purpose, but, but the way that, that the synoptic writers, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke do it, it's different from the way that, that John does it. They're, they're compiling a, a systematic list of the things that, that Jesus did, tracking his ministry. Um, but, but really, the vast majority of the ministry of Jesus that is presented in John's Gospel is the latter portion, even the last section, this part of, of controversy and opposition towards Jesus by the, by the Pharisees and the Jews in general. But now as to what, what feast it was specifically, it really doesn't matter. Because, and, it, and it's not an important detail because John doesn't make it an important detail. He doesn't tell us which feast it was. But it's interesting that every other time that John mentions a feast, he mentions specifically which feast it is. John is simply giving us here a time marker, and he's highlighting the transition from the last phase of Jesus' ministry into this next phase of Jesus' ministry. As we'll see in the coming weeks, that with the, the feasts that are coming up, that Jesus intentionally, intentionally shows what these feasts 
are really all about. He, he performs living, the miracles and the things that he says and does are, are living parables pointing to the reality that these feasts foreshadow and showing that they ultimately point to him. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus here in John chapter 5 is making a very important point about who he is. He's making a very important point about who he is as he relates to people. And even more pointedly, he's showing who he is in how he relates to the law. So there in verse 2, it says, Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, which is near the sheep gate. Now the Greek here simply says sheep, but it was most likely the, the sheep gate, the same one that was referred to in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now there's a couple of different archaeological sites that, that, that archaeologists believe are this, this pool of Bethesda. One, the more traditional one, um, is near the church of St. Anne in Jerusalem, and you can actually visit the, the site to this day, and there are several columns there and, and the remains of porticos, which, which do actually, they, they came after the time of Christ, fairly significant period of time after the time of Christ. But that's one traditional site. And the other one is, is in the valley of, in the Kidron Valley, just outside the walls, outside the current walls, where there is, there is a, um, a little spring that, that periodically bubbles up. Um, because of the, it's, a, it's a natural spring, and when the waters mix, sometimes the, the waters bubble up. And, and so there's some debate as to, as, to which, uh, as to which spring it actually was. But as I want us to see here, which spring it actually was is really superfluous. It really doesn't matter for our understanding. Because this passage is not about the healing waters. It's about the healing Lord. But at this pool, many invalids gathered, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And this is where we come to our first point of controversy. If you're using an ESV or an NIV or a NASB or a New King James, there is no verse 4. In fact, the passage actually cuts it off in the middle of verse 3. But in the King James, verses 3 and 4 say, In these, this, these pools lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first went after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease that he had. Now, the modern Bibles um, don't actually include this except as a, as a footnote or um, in, in italics or sometimes with brackets with a, with a reference saying that, that the earlier manuscripts don't actually include this part of the text. Now, this, this issue of, of Bible versions is an important issue, and it is one that, that I will revisit later on. It'll become even more evident in, uh, in John chapter 8. Um, but but I'd really, I do plan to visit it in more detail, but I, I'm not going to, and there just wouldn't be the time to, to give an exhaustive study of the different uh, Bible versions. 
But I know when I, when I first, many years ago, when I was first, when it was brought to my attention, the differences between some of our English Bibles, I have to admit I was, I was shaken. Uh, I thought, isn't, isn't the Bible inerrant? Isn't, isn't the Bible authoritative? How could there then be, be differences between the different Bibles? Well, first of all, we, we need to remember that it is not our modern English Bibles that are inerrant, it is the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts were inerrant. The Greek texts of the New Testament were originally letters which were written down and were circulated. These were 100% without error. Now, because they were they were inerrant because they were also inspired. God, the Holy Spirit, moved in the hearts of godly men to write down exactly what he wanted written down. Every single word of those original manuscripts was exactly what God wanted written there. And because these texts are inerrant, and inspired, they're also authoritative. As I said from the outset, they, they dictate everything in matters of life and faith. They are our, are our ultimate authority. But of course, we don't have access to those original manuscripts. What happened was the, the manuscripts, they were, they were passed along and they were they were, were copied and, and recopied, and there were, there were errors crept in. Now again, this doesn't mean that the Bible is, is errant. It means that there was, were copying mistakes. And this is what, what scholars disagree about what really happened here with, with John chapter 5, but, um, but th- those who think that that, this, that the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 were added, believe that what happened here was there was a tradition that, the, um, that at a certain time, the, there was the, the, the waters were troubled and the first person to go into the water was healed. And that, this, uh, that a scribe inserted a, a comment into the margin that was an answer that was explaining verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So it's, an, it's viewed to be an explanation of this phenomenon, of why this, this, this person, why the spirit would move and, and somebody would have to go in there first in order to be healed. So that's, that's the view that, that the, those translators of the, the modern translations take. And they also point out the fact that um, this is actually, I got this, some of this information from a, a King James uh, website, and there's a lot of different debate out there. This was one of the more scholarly um, examples of, of what I've, from what I've seen, but, but it pointed out that, that the earliest manuscripts that include this, this passage, this passage in question, um, are actually in the Roman Vulgate, so in the 4th century. So a significant period of time after the original manuscripts were written down, and they were, that's, in, that's in Latin. The first time that, it's at, that it actually appears in Greek, which is the, the language that was originally written in, was in the 6th century, so, so far later again. And so the modern translators would say, well, that this is why we believe it was added. 
and they would point to earlier manuscripts that don't include this passage. But those who think that the passage was removed, again, this came from a, from a, a relatively scholarly King James source that I found, um, they tend to hypothesize that in order to keep people from focusing on such means of healing, some scribe omitted the text in order to, in order to avoid confusion or, or heresy, and then demoted it, denoted that, demoted that passage to simply a, a comment in the margin. Now, really, we, we have no way of knowing for sure. We can't apply the rule of faith to this passage because there's, there's no phenomenon anywhere else in the Bible that, that reveals that this type of thing happening. There's, no, there's nowhere else that we know, but, but there are other passages that we can apply some of these same uh, rules to and I think come up with a little bit of a clearer answer. But we need to remember here, and, and this, is, this is so important that you understand this, that you need to not let these things shake your confidence in the inerrancy and the authority and the inspiration of God's holy word. Because when it comes to, to the, the better English translations, and I'm not referring here to the message, these Bibles agree, there's the, the differences are, are so few between these manuscripts, between these different manuscripts, between the King James and these modern, uh, between these modern versions, is that they have about 99% agreement. And there is no point of doctrine that is under contention, no major point of doctrine that can be called into question through any of these differences. Most of the differences um, relate to different spellings and and some and some they're they're mostly for the most part tend to be to be slight. Um, there are a couple of of bigger sections of scripture I'll be talking in a, in a few weeks, Lord willing, about uh, about John chapter eight, and that's that's um, there's there's a, a really important that we that we work through those issues with that passage. But here in John chapter five, this is one of those cases where no major doctrine is being affected by the difference. The focus of this passage, again, isn't on the healing waters. The focus of this passage, passage is on the healing Lord. And it's also on the timing of the healing. So let's turn our attention there. The healing Lord. Jesus comes to Bethesda, which in Aramaic and Hebrew means house of mercy. So Jesus, once again here, is showing mercy. He's showing personal care for an invalid, just as he showed personal care for Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and the, the official and his son. Here Jesus is showing his concern for an invalid, a man who'd been in this condition for 38 years. And again, all of this, all of these healings are in fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist from prison sent his disciples to Jesus to ask if you are the Christ or whether we should look for another, Jesus responded with obvious reference, reference to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus told them that it was things just like these that proved who Jesus is. 
These things prove that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And so Jesus told those disciples of John, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. And he added, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But here in this passage, as I said from the outset, we're going to see that that is exactly what happened. That people were offended by Jesus. When Jesus saw this man lying there, he knew that he'd been there for a long time, and he asked him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, this probably would seem like an obvious question to you. I mean, after all, this this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. But I really don't think it's that obvious, and, and Jesus didn't think so either, otherwise he wouldn't have asked the question. But in response to Jesus' question, the man says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. So this man wanted his body to be healed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been there. But whether this man really wants to be healed isn't in his answer to Jesus here. The real answer to this question that Jesus poses in verse 6 is found in the man's response to Jesus. Will he respond to Jesus in love and faith? Will he obey Jesus' command in verse 14? See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Many people say they want healing, but they don't want the price at which true healing comes. If a homeless man approaches you on the street and asks, and you ask him, do you want to get off the streets? What do you think he's going to say to you? Again, you might think that the answer is obvious. You might think he's going to, to fall down on his knees and say, yes, please help me. Now, I haven't experienced this as much. I have experienced it here in Kelowna. But when I lived in, in downtown Toronto, I experienced homelessness and homeless people on, on pretty much a daily basis. And we were told at the beginning that we shouldn't um, hand out money to the homeless people down there because they would just simply use it for drugs and alcohol. But we didn't want to just walk away, so we thought we would try to offer opportunities for, for help, to help. And so we made up little cards that had various uh, important phone calls, uh, places you could call for, for men's shelters and, and women's shelters and, and places where they could, could get solid Christian help to, to come off um, drugs and alcohol. But almost invariably, during the whole time that I was there, there was only one person that responded positively to this type of thing. One. I don't, I don't know how many. When you ask them if they wanted true help, their eyes would just glaze over. They didn't want help. At least not to the point of, of being willing to let go of their sin. You see, the issue was they loved drugs and alcohol. And they had no intention of getting off them. And they loved 
homelessness because it meant that they could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, with no one to tell them what to do. So that they, they, they might have not enjoyed the, the consequences. They might have not have enjoyed the hangovers and the convulsions. They might not have enjoyed the, the nights in the freezing cold in the dead of winter in Toronto. But they loved their sins so much that they weren't willing to really be healed. And I believe that's the situation for this man here in John chapter 5. In this case, the man's physical ailment wasn't his ultimate problem. The man's ultimate problem was spiritual. It was a spiritual problem. And, and we can see that, that in this case, the man's physical ailment very likely resulted from his sin because, again, of what Jesus said to him in the temple in verse 14. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Likewise, when a demon is cast out of an evil person only to come back with seven stronger demons, the person's latter state is worse than their first. These people don't love Jesus, so they might receive a measure of healing. They might receive a measure of, of blessing, a measure of either physical healing or of some other blessing. Hebrews warns about these people as well who have even partaken of the, of the Holy Spirit, not meaning that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, but meaning that, that they were part of the, the blessing of being in, in Holy Spirit, in a, in a Spirit-filled church. But when that doesn't happen, that these people end up in a worse state than they were before. Now, I, I shared some of this with you before, but when I was in, as a, as a new believer, I was in Narcotics Anonymous, and I saw countless examples of people who were free from drugs and alcohol, but their latter spiritual state was worse than their former. Even to the point there was, there was one individual that I know of who was, was viewed as somewhat of a leader within those circles and ended up committing suicide, jumped off a building because of his sin. Was his latter state worse than his former? Obviously it was. Now we need to be careful here. Even though I believe there's a, 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 a direct link between this man's sin and his physical ailment, it, it's not true in every case that, that, that our physical ailments are a direct result of sin or that bad things happen to us because of sin. For example, Jesus talked about the, the Tower of Siloam who, who fell on the Galileans, and, and he's saying it wasn't that their sin was any worse than anybody else's, but that you need to watch your own heart so that something worse doesn't happen to you. So, so it's, it's dangerous to say that definitively every time somebody has a physical ailment, it is because of their sin. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this when we get to, to John chapter 9, which is, in many respects, a parallel, well, a mirror passage to this one. But, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous to say that unless you have clear biblical testimony. 
that this person's physical ailment is as a result of his sin. We have examples, we'll talk about this around the Lord's table, but of, of the people that Paul, the Corinthians, that Paul warns, he says that many are weak and sick and many have died because they have taken the, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We have the example of um, Elisha's servant Gehazi, who has the, the leprosy of Naaman transferred to him because of his ungodly seeking of, of gain. We have the example of Ananias and Sapphira who are struck dead because directly because of their sin. So yes, there can be physical consequences as a direct result of our sin. It can be a direct result, whether it's in a, in a situation, just a natural result. For example, somebody who is promiscuous getting a sexually transmitted disease. Or somebody who is a glutton getting heart disease. Or whether somebody who is living in constant fear ends up being weak and sick because of their their bondage to fear and lack of faith in the Lord. So there can be natural consequences, but there can also be spiritual consequences, like those ones that I mentioned from 1 Corinthians and 2 Kings and Acts 5. But Jesus here chooses to heal this man physically. And this healing probably reminds you of the situation in Mark chapter 2 when, when the friends of the paralytic cut a hole in the roof and lower him down, and then Jesus heals him. And if you remember, if you remember the words that Jesus says, when he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And this creates a conflict between Jesus and those who are there because they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says to them the same words that he uses here in John chapter 5. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say take up your mat and walk? Jesus was showing there by his authority in healing physical ailment and in his authority to forgive sin that he is God. He is God. So Jesus here in John chapter 5 is showing that he is God through his authority to heal this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And he does this not only through his authority to heal, but also through when he chooses to do so. So now let's take a look at, at the timing of the healing, the timing of the healing. We see in the second part of verse 9 that the day was the Sabbath. Jesus chose to heal this man on the Sabbath. Now it would be far beyond the scope of this message to exhaust all of the theology and the implications and applications of the Sabbath. This issue is going to come up again as we work our way through John's Gospel, but if you're interested in a, in a detailed study of, of what I believe the Bible teaches on this subject, I can either point you to some, some, some really good books on the matter, or I can also give you a paper that I wrote when I was in seminary. But, if, but for now, uh, I just want to focus on a few things that, that can be 
that we can be, can be gleaned here and, and some general applications. But as soon as you mention a thing like Sabbath, often allegations and accusations arise in people's minds. Some people that I've talked to about this in the past have dismissed my views as legalistic. Now to that I would say, you better get your allegations straight. Legalism is the sinful attempt to earn one's righteousness through so-called good works. Beloved, this could not be further from my motivations. I know full well that we are saved by faith alone. That we can do nothing, nothing, to add or to detract from the salvation that we know in Christ Jesus. One could possibly dismiss my views as pharisaical. Pharisaism is any addition to God's commands that go beyond what is outlined in Holy Scripture. Now this applies to any, any addition to the Word of God, but especially that which is contained within the Mishnah. And this is the, the issue that Jesus is going to be addressing here today. You could also level the accusation of Judaizer on me. Now, the Judaizer is, is one who says that Gentiles must conform to Jewish ceremonial law that does not apply to Christians under the New Covenant. This is most clearly seen in the issue of circumcision that, that the Apostle Paul is, is addressing in Galatians. But you have to see whether the, the allegation is true as I present this message, whether, whether I can, can genuinely be, be accused of Phariseeism or of being a Judaizer. But I would encourage you, as I present this message, and as you study the Scriptures for yourself, to be like a Berean, to search the Scriptures for yourselves, not to accept anything because it's what, solely because it's what I say or because of what of some favorite theologian has to say, but let your position be drawn from what God has to say in his words. And I also need to, to, to warn you that your flesh will chafe against any of God's commandments. And so we need to, to crucify the flesh. And we need to, to allow that, that maybe we have a wrong understanding of, of what this is really all about. But whatever conclusion you come to, please remember that we are to operate in love towards one another in submission to God and his holy word. So Jesus here chose to heal this man on the Sabbath. Now this was entirely intentional, and Jesus did it often. In verse 10, when the Pharisees saw that the man had been healed, they said, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They would have been thinking here, probably of, uh, very likely of Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, of the command to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And then Moses goes on to, to say that you shouldn't work or your, your family or your servants or your livestock. 
And he, said, he appeals there to creation. He says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The Lord blessed the Sabbath and set it apart. The Pharisees also would have appealed to Jeremiah 17, verses 21 and 22. Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. But the Pharisees missed the point of the Sabbath. It wasn't... It wasn't to be a day of common work, but of rest. As William Hendrickson points out, in these passages, the reference, however, is clearly to the type of burden that was, which was connected with the performance of ordinary labor for gain, with trading and marketing. This was the focus of these, of these passages. But the Pharisees did not rely on these passages of Scripture in order to to form their understanding. Their ultimate authority was the tradition of men that added to the Word of God. They were relying on the Mishnah, a complex system of rules and regulations to govern behavior that went far beyond any of the commands that were in Holy Scripture. And that was especially true of the Sabbath. The Pharisees had no less than 39 separate rules for what you could not do on the Sabbath. And guess what the 39th was? You shall not take up your bed on the Sabbath. So Jesus here is intentionally commanding this man to break the Pharisaical tradition in order to bring his ministry in direct conflict with their so-called ministry. The Pharisees actually had a command. It was the 39th says that an object of between private domain and the public domain, sorry, that they're unlawful to transport anything, an object between private and public domain, or for distance of four cubits within the public domain. This is nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. They had added to the commandments of God. And they revealed their heart when they confronted the man. The man replied, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man is, is, is passing the buck. He's saying it's Jesus' fault. Jesus told me to do it. And R.C. Sproul says that, that this passing of the buck is akin to the way that Adam shifted the blame to Eve and ultimately to God in the Garden of Eden. When he says in Genesis 3.12, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's her fault, but ultimately it's your fault, God. And that's what this man is doing. He's saying it's Jesus' fault. But what he didn't realize is that he's really saying it's God's fault. He's blaming God too. The Pharisees then asked in verse 12, Who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Imagine their hardness of heart. They have just 
He's just testified that he's, he's been healed. He's just been, there's just been a miracle that has been testified to, and they are more concerned about their man-made traditions than they are about who this could have been that performed this miracle. Now, this issue is going to be far more clear, more obvious in John chapter 9. But we find out in verse 13 that the man didn't know. The man didn't know who had healed him. He didn't even care after being healed to find out who Jesus was. On an infinitely lesser scale, this reminds me of a documentary that I saw a few years ago about North Korea. And in this documentary, an ophthalmologist went to North Korea to, uh, to heal people of, of cataracts, to be able to, to, to go in there and to operate on people so that they would actually gain their sight back. He wasn't going there as a missionary. This was just humanitarian aid. But with him, posing as a nurse, went a reporter with, with all kinds of secret cameras, so they got all of these things on film. And it was really striking to me that, that there was one situation in which a man was, his, the bandages were being taken off his eyes. And, and standing there in front of them was this ophthalmologist who had performed the surgery, who had given him his sight back. And this, this North Korean man stepped around the doctor who had healed him to go and bow before an image of their leader, of the supreme leader who was worshipped in North Korea. How often do we act like that? How often do we step around Jesus when we have gotten what we wanted? When we treat God instead of, of as God, as our Lord, we treat him like Santa Claus. Santa Claus is, is usually forgotten by about 11 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. And most kids don't think about him again until about a month before Christmas when they realize they better get their behavior right because Santa Claus is watching. We often do that, don't we? We ask the Lord for something and then we don't even take the time to say thank you. We just take it in our hands and off we go on our way until the next crisis or the next need arises. This man in John chapter 5 is like the nine lepers in Luke 17. Jesus healed ten of them, but only one of them, a Samaritan no less, came back and gave glory to God. And again, we'll see this in, in John chapter 9 where, where the response of, of this man is presented as in sharp contrast to the response of the man who had been born blind in that chapter. But in verse 14, Jesus went and found the man in the temple. And as we saw earlier, he commanded the man that he sin no more so that nothing worse would happen to him. Not only was Jesus commanding this man to forsake his sin, but he was also making sure that the Pharisees knew that it was Jesus who had healed him. Jesus was drawing himself into direct conflict with the Pharisees. How did the healed man respond? He went straight to the Pharisees, just as Jesus knew that he would. To use a modern analogy, he, 
he sold Jesus down the river because he, he, he was more concerned about what the Pharisees thought of him than he was about what God thought of him. The response of the Pharisees was also predicted. They persecuted Jesus. So Jesus responded in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. We're going to talk more about this next week. But with this statement, Jesus was declaring himself to be God. And in verse 18, we, found, we find out that not only did the Pharisees want to kill Jesus because they believed he was breaking the Sabbath, but even more so because he was declaring himself to be God. So what does, does this have to do with us 2,000 years later? How, how should we respond to the Sabbath commandment? Well, I believe that, that it was God, I know that it was God who established the pattern of one day in rest out of every seven. You know, we can, we can explain where the year comes from because we, it's the time that it, that it takes the earth to revolve around the sun. We can explain where the day comes from because it, 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 take, it takes 24 hours for the earth to rotate on its axis. We can explain where months come from because they come from the cycles of the moon. But the only explanation that we have for the week is because God created it. Because God established the pattern of the week. And God set out from the point of creation that there would be a pattern of one day of rest. So even though Moses refers to the, the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, the commandment goes actually all the way back to the beginning. God didn't need to rest after his creation. God is omnipotent. But as you see there on, on the cover of your bulletin, Jesus, God, is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus did not, God did not create the Sabbath the man, man for the Sabbath, God created the Sabbath for man. He gave it as a gift. He gave, us a, gave it to us as an opportunity to rest. Now, those, there are those who say that, that because this, this Sabbath command, uh, because we're now in the, in the new covenant, that the Sabbath command no longer applies. These New Covenant theologians say that if a command isn't repeated in the New Testament, it doesn't actually apply to Christians. Therefore, they say that nine-tenths of the Ten Commandments apply, but not the tenth. Now, I have two answers for that position. Number one, the Sabbath is present in the New Testament. Look at Mark 27, 28 again where Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Very clearly there in the New Testament. Jesus didn't cancel the Sabbath. He showed what it was supposed to be for. How many times did Jesus really break the Sabbath in his ministry? Zero. None. Not even once. 
However, he repeatedly and directly broke the pharisaical man-made traditions. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, to completely obey it, and his obedience is then credited to our account. But just because Jesus fully obeyed the commands, does that mean we are no longer free to do whatever we want? No, because Jesus didn't commit adultery, we don't want to commit adultery. Because Jesus didn't lie, we don't want to lie. Because Jesus didn't commit murder, we don't want to commit murder. But is it true that because Jesus didn't break the Sabbath, that you don't want to break the Sabbath? Number two. My second answer to, to New Covenant theology and its position on this. Unless a New Testament passage clearly abrogates or cancels an Old Testament law, it still applies. Whereas the position of the New Covenant theologians is that it is only those that are reiterated. But their hermeneutic is backwards. It's backwards. We, only those things which are clearly canceled do not apply. For example, the, the dietary laws or that the sacrificial system have been clearly and directly and pointedly abrogated or canceled in the New Testament. But what passages do so in the New Testament? Zero. Not one. Remember, the rule of faith is that we are to interpret less clear passages in light of clearer ones. Are there passages that you could use to, 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 to try to, to cancel the Sabbath? There, there are verses that you could use that way. But the more clear passages, the vast majority of the, the passages that point to the Sabbath in the Old and the New Testament, point to its perpetuity. Think about Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. If you, turn your, your, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of the Lord, honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What law is the writer of Hebrews talking about? How would this have been read by the initial recipients of this letter? It's talking about the law of God. Jeremiah 33, 31, where God promises that in the new covenant, he would write the law on our hearts. And that law, beloved, includes the pattern of resting one day in seven. The Lord didn't create the Sabbath to be a burden, but a delight. 
It's been my practice for, for over 10 years to set aside this, this day, Sunday, as a day of rest. Now, I know the bondage of legalism. I have been in the bondage of legalism. And beloved, this is not it. This is a joy. And you know when I first began to discover it? It was at a time when I was at, I was at the busiest, one of the busiest times of my life. When I had all kinds of things on, the, on my agenda. I was being stretched in several directions. And I remember waking up, I'm, I'm a morning person, and so I remember waking up, my pattern was to wake up and thinking about all the things that I had to do in the day. But then remembering, hang on a second. Today's a day of rest. What a joy to not have to think about those things. Even in times of my studies, when I would, would rush home after church, because I had to cram, write a paper, where I had work to do, when I discovered the delight of resting on this day, it actually multiplied my time back to me. It didn't make any human sense, but it multiplied my time back to me. The Puritans called the Sabbath the market day for the soul. It was the day in which they would get stocked up on their spiritual supplies, like we would go one day a week to the market to get our groceries. It was the day that they would go to get their spiritual groceries. Now, of course, they, they spent time in the Word every day, a lot more time, I would argue, than, than we do in our culture. But it was, it was a day to be recharged spiritually. Now, as a pastor, I have the incredible privilege of spending several hours a day studying God's Word. But almost none of you have that blessing. Wouldn't you benefit from spending more time in the Word, not only through the week, but a special time on Sunday, a time when, when you can, can devote yourself, when you're, you're free from the distractions? This is what God called it to be. Now, I'm not going to, to lay out a set of, of system, check this, do this, don't do that. That's, that's not my goal here today. But from the, the Puritans, from their, their reading of Scripture, they saw it as a day for worship, for fellowship, for works of necessity, and for works of mercy. They saw, like in, in Isaiah in Isaiah 58, that it's not a day for, for seeking your own pleasure. Now, beloved, please know that it wasn't intentional that I preached this sermon on Super Bowl Sunday. But how much does football take up your thinking on Sunday instead of the Word of God? How many people rush home from church to be glued to the television for the rest of the day? It's a sad indictment on our culture. It was, I remember this so well, in Ontario, it was, it was very shortly after I came to Christ that they, that they passed legislation that the stores would now be open on Sundays. 
It was only 20 years ago that it was illegal in this country for stores to be open on Sunday. How quickly has this fallen from our consciousness? Not just in the world, but even in the church. Now, I know that I've I've probably stepped on a few toes here today. And it's not my intention to to, to do so, except maybe where people need to be challenged and to consider, to consider what the Lord has to say about this. Again, not ultimately what I have to say or what your favorite author has to say, but about what Scripture has to say, about what God has to say on these things. And the way that we respond to what God commands us to do will reveal who the Lord is to us. Now, again, you may have some, some issues or maybe even some anger. Um, and, uh, and I would encourage you, if that's the case, please do come and talk to me. Remember the exhortation that I, I set out at the beginning, that if you have a problem with something that I've said, um, I'm the person you need to come talk to about it. And we need to deal with these things with the open Bible and, and out of, in love and humility. So that whichever way we come down on this, that ultimately God is, is glorified in our responses to each other. And I would pray that, that you would consider these things. Consider them. And if you genuinely want to know more, I'd be more than happy to provide you with some some things and to discuss these things with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that guides us into truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to ever increasingly submit ourselves to what your word would teach us. Lord, that we may demonstrate that we are your children in the way that we live differently from the rest of the world. And we ask that you would do this for our good, but ultimately for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.